I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, roundtable freeform discussion about lore and our favorite media. I'm your host, Joe Perez, one of several lore-focused folks from Blizzard Watch, and I've got my stupendous co-host with me today, Matt Rossi. How are you doing today, Matt? You know that there's that video from AHA Take On Me? Yeah. Where the guy, is a he's a comic book type illustration, but eventually becomes real and comes through and, and helps save the woman and all that stuff happens? Yeah. Well, he pulls her into the comic, gets her in trouble, then saves her. But yeah. Yeah. In the the follow up video that that Aha made, because Aha is huge uh, in like Finland and Sweden and all that, they they are not a one hit wonder over there. They have like they literally dominated uh, pop for like a decade and a half. Um, this the video called "The Sun Always Rises Only Shines on TV." He gets like sucked back into the comic, and they are separated forever, never to see each other again. I'm telling you this because I want people to understand. There's lore to Aha videos. There is. And and I know it. There's, you know, uh, we're going to talk about this one day because I think it's a fascinating topic. There are a lot of like um, music videos that Americans don't understand were different elsewhere and actually have cohesive lore, like George Harrison music videos when he was solo, mm-hmm. um, like actually has like structure and lore and was telling a story. It is wild, but we're not here to talk about that today. Uh, well, maybe this will be a future topic and, uh, y'all can ask us, uh, questions about stuff like that if you want. Uh, but we are not explain Godzilla by the blue oyster cult to you. Nobody will look it up. (laughs) Uh, but we're going to be answering some questions this episode. Uh, and if you have questions for this or any of our podcasts, I do want to remind you that you can go ahead and send those into us. You can reach us at podcast at blizzardwatch.com. That's a singular podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Uh, specify in the subject line, what show it's for. And uh, if you have a special pronunciation of your name, make sure you include it inside of the email. Uh, if you want to hit us up on Discord, we have a channel set aside for, well, everyone. It's the Q&A Podcast Questions channel. Uh, you can drop those in there as well. Same rules apply. Tell us what show it's for and let us know if I need to pronounce your name a very special way. Uh, and then lastly, but certainly not least, we have a channel set aside for our Patreon supporters as a way of saying thank you uh, for supporting us monetarily as we continue to produce these shows. Uh, it's the Patreon Q and Podcast Questions channel. We tend to work look there first while getting the emails together to uh, get to work. Uh, so we're going to go with some questions here from, uh, well, we're going to start with Tetsemi, who sends us lots of stuff. Uh, question for Lore Watch, and it's based around sh- Cyberpunk and Shadowrun. And it's clothing styles. What is considered corpo street and what's freelancer style? And do you have some examples where they cross over and are accepted even begrudgingly in all areas? And what are the lines you don't cross for clothing? This sounds like an odd question, but clothing in cyberpunk and Shadowrun is actually a big deal. Uh, There's a certain level of peacocking in the world where you represent almost as if you were a gang member because in a lot of ways the different lifestyles that you hail from sort of have that uh that tinge to them if you're a street kid you generally aren't going to go around with the latest of high fashion because one that's not what's expected of you from the people who know you uh you can still make yourself presentable but you're not going to be like you know squeaky clean um you may go as far as shabby as shabby chic but that's really about it uh, corpos, you are expected a very certain level of polish, no matter what you're doing. Even if you're in an athletic event, 
it is very specific in like how clean clean and crisp it is meant to be um for your average like street goer uh there's a certain level of nonchalance about it uh and freelancers are, are all over the place it is very distinct so i guess let's start with well i guess let's start with street so street kids what would you expect them to be uh wearing most days there matt well it really depends on what their goal is and what their you know their means are um to use the game itself there's 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 different kinds of of fashion movements that affect everyone in different ways depending on their socioeconomic strata for example there's like a kind of brutal minimalism it's actually i think it's even called brutalism uh where you basically it's similar to the soviet uh building structures um, of the late tw- the or mid 20th century where it's it's all utilitarian and it's all about just looking like you're a, a functional object it's like i don't care that which, what you want your clothing to be sending there is the message that i don't care what i look like i care what this does yeah and it actually works for a lot of things like you can you could go i'm trying to figure out how to put this like you could work for a corporation and 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 have that style but you would be doing it differently like a corpo who's going by the brutalism proponent would still be using the most expensive things they could get they would just be using expensive things that are function over form uh whereas um one of the things that joe mentioned earlier was the whole um peacocking aspect a lot of street kids really go for this uh in cyberpunk you can see it in if you've watched the uh opening of the 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 street kid v is wearing gold lame pants and a bright pink and yellow shirt with a black X on it. It's, it's all eye catching. It's not, you know, it's not black. It's not understated. It's very much a, I am daring you to notice me. I am daring you to ignore me. Um, that is a big aspect of street kid culture. If you look at the gangs like the Valentinos or Maelstrom or any of it, they do it very differently, but well, Maelstrom is more Miltech. Yeah, but they're they're Miltech in a showy way. Yeah, I'm going back to your peacocking aspect. Like, you know, Maelstrom is very different in terms of the kind of structures they are yes. wearing, but they are very similar. I would never say this to either an actual. If I was in the game and I I wanted to start a fight, I would tell that Valentinos that they dress like Maelstrom because my God, would they be shooting at me very quickly after that? But it, it's still true that both the Valentinos and Maelstrom. And the tiger claws go for eye-catching, distinctive, immediate statements in their clothing. They want you to know immediately who they are and what they will do. Yeah, and they're like, not subtle. Yeah, like going back to the Miltech things, so I want to point that out as well because I didn't really bring that up. Uh, Matt's right with the peacocking and sort of the utilitarian aspect of what they wear, but it's also uh, the other thing to keep in mind is cybernetics is a component of this as well. Right. And Miltech tends to be very brutal in the display of their cybernetics uh, using the game as a really good example, because I will give CD Projekt Red a lot, a lot of credit, especially for and likely because they brought Mike Pondsmith on for it. Uh, but they knew their source material and they they did a really good job with with uh, Maelstrom is a really good example where, you know, some of their people didn't have most of their heads. It had been completely replaced with sensors and uh, other things to sort of take over the functionality of eyes and ears and, yeah. and and stuff like that. So that it was very clear up front that they were a Miltech spec gang, right? It wasn't. They weren't mm-hmm. street kids. They weren't uh, corpos. They weren't, uh, you know... Uh, any of the other possible origins, they were very specifically Miltech. And there's a lot of that as well, right? Like um, yeah. what Pam and uh, Pam Am and uh, Pam Ann and her stuff. Pam Am, yeah. Pam yeah. Am's a nomad. And it's very definitely a nomad style that she's rocking, but she does it in a very um, coordinated way. That, that That is not the case for all nomads. A lot of nomads like Mitch, Mitch just wears whatever the heck he's got. Right, where Pan Am, you know, Pan Am is wearing Pan Am's outfit is calculated because she went to Night City and worked for a while as a runner. And one of the things you do as a runner is you advertise with you. Yep. Because you are that you are your billboard. But she also you know? kept she still kept to the same mm-hmm. things that she was comfortable with. So like instead of going with like a pure like 
I don't know. She wasn't running out with like high leather trench coats, pretending like she was in the Matrix. She had riding leathers and racing leathers and things that are very common or would be prized among the nomads, right? Yeah. Things mm-hmm. things that that harken back to that sort of rough life of moving from spot to spot and not really having a place to call home. And then you have Corpos, which Corpos, the flavor of Corpo varies wildly depending on what their corporation is. Because well, that's the other thing, too, in Shadowrun and Cyberpunk is that any of the corporations have a distinct cultural identity. At this point in the game world, uh, they're already, they're, they have countries of origin that they sort of wear on their sleeve. Uh, for Shadowrun, I could talk about like Azteca Corporation, uh, which you know has very South American roots and as and is led by a South American dragon. Go figure. Uh, and as a result, like their level of peacocking and pristine corpo um, garb is you know, still suits and things like that, but with the traditional colors of like Aztec people, a lot more turquoise golds, a lot more earthy tones, like hearkening back to their cultural roots. Uh, there may be patterns woven into those suits. Uh, there may be elaborate uh, jewelry that hangs from, you know, their faces and ears and, and, and stuff like that to sort of pull back to that culture. And then you have some that are like from Japan where, they will harken back to more of that traditional Japan aesthetic. Uh, and you can see that in both Cyberpunk and Shadowrun. And the difference between them and everything else is, while it still has that cultural tint to it, it's very clean and crisp and money. Like, it's, yeah. we're showing that we have wealth and power. Yeah. One of the things that you can see, this is specifically in, in Cyberpunk 2077, one of the things they did in the art direction was they had the idea of various... Um, for lack of a better word, visual shorthand styles. Uh, they have basically kitsch, uh, entropism, neo-militarism, and neo-kitsch. And kitsch is basically kind of like street kit all the way. It's just like whatever they, you know, it's trying to make a distinctive outfit out of whatever you can afford. Uh, whereas neo-kitsch is, I now have money, so I can afford to buy the best clothes possible, but I still dress like I'm in a music video. Um, I, I still... It's basically thrift shop, but if the thrift shop was for very rich people. Um, and that's just one example. Like Joe mentioned mil-spec. Another thing they call that in the game is is neo-militarism. And it's based around the idea of even, you know, how you dress as a weapon. Uh, not a weapon in the case of, in some cases, because you've, you know, you've got a gun in your arm. But in some cases, it's just this display I'm making is a, it's a forward projection of power. It's a social force force multiplier. You see how I'm dressed and you know that I can buy and sell you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, the, the entropism thing is kind of like, that's the solo type player all the way. That's the solo. It's, it's basically, I dress in whatever suits the situation and my clothing is designed for that purpose. Um, so if you're going to like, if you're going for a meet to like get a gig with like, say you, you know, Mil, that uh, I want to say Militech. Yeah, Militech. You know that Militech is want, looking to hire some runners. You dress like people that Militech would expect to say show up. Um, they're not looking for corpos, but they are not looking for for an unprofessional people. And S- S- Shadowrun's interesting because everything applies here, although it's it's a different setting. But everything we just said applies. But also in Shadowrun, there's the fact that like concepts have power in Shadowrun. They do because magic is real. Uh, so in a lot of places, wearing a traditional uniform, isn't just about displaying wealth and power. It's also about displaying identity as a, as a, as again, a force multiplier, like the, like as technology, do they just call themselves Azteca now? Yeah. Azteca. Okay. Yeah. They used to be as technology. Um, Azteca, Azteca would basically not have a problem with wearing the accoutrement of its culture. As a matter like of fact, they, they often they often had people employed that would dress like traditional shaman of like Aztec culture. Like they would be, they would show up to a corporate meeting. And they wouldn't be in a suit. They'd be in there in like the 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 you know ceremonial garbs. They would be in there in the vestments of that station, and that is perfectly acceptable because, as Matt's pointing out, that is an outward display of power and attunement and acuity to that particular element, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's 
also the way like there are people in in using again using Shadowrun as an example. There are people in Shadowrun who dress uh, very much with the idea of concealment in mind, and mm-hmm. for various reasons. Sometimes you're dressing to conceal who you are. Sometimes you're dress- dressing to conceal what you are. Like if you're an insect shaman, you do not want people to know you're an insect shaman until it is time for you to do the horrible things that insect shaman do. And that's not all insect shaman. There's a couple. Most of them are are very difficult for humans to understand, but there are a couple that are actually almost almost comprehensible. There are like some that you can work with, like aphids, but mm-hmm. most of them are pretty pretty hard to deal with. Um, but like another example would be like the the paladins of Tirkangir, which is an elven kingdom that is basically in most of Oregon and Seattle. I mean, in Washington, and they dress in armor. You know, like they traditional up- armor. Yeah, wear armor. Now, they're not actually the real traditional elves in most cases, although there are actually some very old elves. Tiernanog exists for a reason. Yeah. But they're the by presenting that front, you're telling people, you know, I am this thing. And saying that in Shadowrun is a is a half step to being it. It's like fake it till you make it times a thousand, because magic is real. So if you really get people to believe it enough, you can make things happen. Uh Going back to cyberpunk, you don't get that level of it because magic isn't real. But presentation is a big part of everything. There's a reason that there are people wandering around using katanas. Yeah. It's people are afraid of them. And that fear is worthwhile. It is very important to remember that the the people you see in the game, not the standard walking around people, but like people like your character, um, if you're playing either the pen and paper version or the game, the video game, um, your character is out there on the edge. That's why they call it edge running. You are on the edge of society. Nobody likes you, but everybody uses you. Yep. Um, you know, Arasaka doesn't like edge runners, but they have edge runners working for them because nobody's better at figuring out how to break into a corporation and no corporation wants to not have somebody who can help stop that. And nobody's as expendable. Yeah, exactly. That's the other thing you, you want people that, you know, when you want something done, that if it goes wrong, you can either just abandon them or scorch them. And there are runners who do that. That they don't like they, they Adam specialize Smasher, in cleanup. Yeah, Adam Smasher is not a corpo. No, he's a cleanup specialist. Yeah, but he's he's very much an edge runner. He's just one that bought in because it benefited him. And his deal with Arasaka is there's a lot of stuff we could talk to about that. Like there's a lot of theories involving how much of Adam Smasher is even there anymore. But the point is, is that he, and he walks around in that full body conversion, you know, cyborg body. He could be, he could hide it. It's quite possible to have a body that full conversion and hide it. It doesn't yeah, have Mr. to look that extreme. Yeah, exactly. But he doesn't hide it. He wants you to know. There's a reason he goes up to people and says the things he says. He wants you to know that he is a killing machine. That is his, that's his brand in a very real way. Yeah. And that makes him very desirable because that's what that's is. Again, it's marketing. There was another question uh, or another thing I want to go back on here that to somebody ask is you asked what, is, what lines don't you cross? Um, there really isn't hard lines, but if you are a street kid who shows up in a full corpo suit, that you haven't modified or isn't like made somehow to represent where you're from, you're going to get ostracized by your own people because that's not how you display yourself. That's not how you show where you're from. You can see, now, you can see a little bit about that in cyberpunk 2077 when they talk about Hayward and Hayward boys and uh, mm-hmm. like the Valentinos and things like that. But going back to the freelancers, freelancers are sort of an exception to all of the rules. They are edge runners sometimes, and sometimes they are purely corpo or or whatever the case is. And going back to what Matt said, these are the people who dress to suit the occasion. These tend to be shadow runners, and they can dress not maybe fully like what they're going to, but that's where that line is acceptable, where they can, if I'm going to go deal with a bunch of people that, you know, revere, you know, the streets, I'm not going to show up in a million dollar suit. I'm going to show up in, you know, my casual gear, my band t-shirt. I'm going to show up in my jeans. I'll have my guns at my hip, uh, maybe a sword across my back, something that's, you know, casual, but still functional. Uh, It also tells, it tells the story of who you are. Exactly. Or at least you tell the story of what you want them to think you are. Yes. 
Um, and that's a that's a big part of the game. Like um, using Shadowrun as an example again, one of the companies in Shadowrun is Ares. Yes, and Ares is a it's a big global military um, operation with the possibility of it being run by an actual ancient Greek god or something pretending to be one. It really is, and that's yeah, and that's the the weird thing about Ares corporate culture is that it's all about. For lack of a better word, it's all about competence, mm-hmm. which is rare in a, in a megacorp because, you know, there's so much backfighting and intrigue. And so if everyone's supposed to be competent, eventually, you you know, you don't want your underlings to be seen as too, comp- too competent because then they might replace you. And that's a, there's a lot of that going around in Aries. But, the, but you might go to a meeting with like an Aries recruiter. Um, you would actually very much want to dress like somebody who knows what they're doing. And is understated about it. But if you're working for Aztec or Azteca, you are not going to do that. Uh, you will either meet with them through like third or fourth parties because when they can, when they contract street work, they do not get their hands dirty. You know, they don't risk it. They're very good at insulating themselves. But you would absolutely want to look like you're authentic to where you you're from. You would not want to dress to match them because they don't want any sign that you're involved with them. And, and they will scour you. Mm-hmm. They will wipe you off the face of the planet if they think you will even remotely leak anything back to them. And it, it really comes down to like, part of the problem is that we're talking about things that are like, it, it, it's, it's an exaggeration of the way this world is now. It's just taking the way things are now to an extreme. Uh, the, the whole point of like a character like V, to use V as an example from Cyberpunk 2077, V is ultimately your doll that you dress up however you want them to look. And then you only really get to see the clothing when you're doing like riding a motorcycle or doing photo mode. Um, this is a subtle hint. CD project, Red, Make the next one have the ability to go third person. Um, but there's a, there's a huge amount of clothing styles that, that you can see if, if you're like a transmog junkie, like I am that revealed to you. Like one of the things that I found really fascinating was like pretty much every gang in night city has their own distinctive, jacket and other clothing combo yep they absolutely um, do like, like sixth street has a special jacket like the voodoo um, boys a, yeah the voodoo boys but the, the sixth street is specifically a jacket it's uh straight pa- it's like straight cut pants and all of it has like american like new and usa flags and stuff on um the voodoo boy stuff there's the voodoo boys jacket but then they have like you know also there's just a general dark and uh subdued look to them Whereas the Valentino stuff is all bright red or, or dark red, actually like blood spilled blood, red spilled blood, all red. over yep. the place. Yeah. And Maelstrom, hoo boy, Joe was talking earlier and I wanted to jump in on this, but I, I wanted to not get in his way. Maelstrom actually, they have an initiation, right? Which is getting their optic nerves split mm-hmm. because Maelstrom, he was mentioning how some Maelstrom guys have half their skulls gone. If you look at Maelstrom's Maelstrom's eyes are not like V has cyber eyes. Like my, my V does at least most of them you will. Um, but, but those cyber eyes look like normal eyes inside a faceplate that looks like a human face. Maelstrom will literally scoop the front of their face off and their eyes will be like six red lights or eight of them. That's why Maelstrom symbol is a human skull with spider legs and a big cyber, like a platform of like eight cyber eyes to look like a spider's, like, you know, spider's eyes. That's the thing. They're they're deliberately pushing their transgression, not 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 even elevation beyond, but transgression of human norms. That's what Maelstrom wants to be about. That's what they're trying to tell you. And it's it's very distinctive. You can get the jacket. You can't get the faceplate, but you could wear tech gogs if you wanted to approximate it. And you can do that with pretty much all of them. You can do it with the tiger claws. You can do it with uh, you can do it with the wraiths. Like there's wraiths clothing out there. There's a wraith wraith jacket, wraiths pants raised boots you can you can go very close to getting the full wraith look um and it is part of for lack of a better word i would say that the world of of cyberpunk 2077 has gone even further than like cyberpunk 2020 did and further than cyberpunk red has into outright tribalism which is yeah that's one of the themes of it right yeah and and shadowrun does tribalism as well but it does tribalism in a different way because it's not about the splitting up of things into tribalism it's about how a shared identity brings power and they, you know, like you have 
groups that were marginalized and oppressed with the return of magic, they managed to claw their way back up. And in some cases, not even just clawed back up, like move to a position of superiority. Most of like most of the Americas have gone back to the first people because, well, turns out all those uh, songs and rites and rituals that they kept alive for generations and generations started working again. Yeah. And that's part of, that's also a part of the cosmetic look of, I'd say a solid 50% of the continental United States oh, easily, and sizable chunk of Canada uh, and all of Mexico really um, has gone back in one way or another. Um, and it is, it is very much visible in, in like the art when you, when you, this is not really about the lore so much as it's just about the actual game. But when I saw the first Shadowrun book, the first blue covered book back in the, the late eighties, uh, I remember thinking to myself, I'd never seen a role-playing game with like what is essentially like a stylized uh, bird that I'd seen only in Native American and First Nations art. It's very similar to the Hiwa, and it's it's on the box. I mean, on the book, it's right there because of how important those various cultures are to the, the world of Shadowrun. And that's an element that's different between the two of them because nobody is coming out on top in the in the world of Cyberpunk 2077. Nobody's getting a return. Everyone's just spiraling down the drain. Whereas in Shadowrun, there's at least hope. I mean, things are bad, but there's hope. If in only if only because a dragon deliberately ran for president just so he'd get assassinated in order to stop the return of Lovecraftian magic-eating horrors, which actually did happen. That's a thing in, in Shadowrun. He's a good dragon, too. I liked him. <laughs> Uh, but hopefully that answers your question, Tatsumi. Uh, it's a good question because I think it's something that people don't really think about very often. Uh, but in those two genres, how you look matters so, so much. Mm-hmm. It is. It is like, like Joe said earlier, it's both an advertisement and a statement. Yep. Uh, it is. It is how you tell people, not necessarily who you are, but who you want them to think you are. All right, we're going to move on to our next one, and this one comes from Silverbolt. While listening to the Fantastic Diablo 4 series y'all did, aw, thanks, I was surprised to hear that Anarius is an Archangel. My prior assumption had been that all of the Archangels were on the Angiris Council. So now I'm wondering if Anarius and presumably other non-Council Archangels are the heavenly equivalent of the lesser evils. Are they the embodiment of virtues that aren't represented represented on the Council? I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I mean, it's the Anguirus Council, and we talked about this a little bit. All of the angels that exist seem to be at, at that level, like the higher ones, the archangels, are sort of manifestations of uh, virtues or, or aspects, right? Um, the It was the original council, or no, what was the original council, Matt? Uh, the original council was Malthael as wisdom, Um it was uh, obviously, I want to keep saying the wrong name. I'm sorry. Imperious as Valor. Tyriel as Justice. Um, Oriel. I'm trying to remember what Oriel was. I can never remember Oriel. Hope. Oh, uh, yeah. Oriel's Hope. And then Ethereal as um, fate. fate. Yeah. And that was the original council. And the thing is, is that other archangels worked for them and mm-hmm. reported to them. For instance, uh, in, in, you know, in, Inarius was an archangel, but he reported to Tyriel. He worked for Tyriel directly. Um, and so, I mean, other angels too, like for instance, Iswell wasn't an archangel, but he reported to Tyriel as well. There are a lot of angels who worked for Tyriel, a lot of angels who worked for Malthiel, a lot of angels who worked for a lot of them. Um, it's just that, you know, the reason we know the ones of the council the most is because they were like the tippy top. And, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know how to explain this. So there's, there's also the, the supposed archangel Yerius. Um, we don't know who Yarius was, you know, we don't know what Yarius was. We don't know if it was a demon. We don't know if it was like a, someone pres- you know, posing as an angel. We have no idea. We don't know what Yarius is or was. Uh, it's just something that interacted with the original Akarat of the, the Zacharum faith. And he came to him and told him, you know, about the inner light within everybody. And we still have no idea what the thing was. Was it an actual archangel or not? That is a mystery. So there's some back and forth on even, you know, how many archangels we even know about. Yes. Um, so like sightless eye too. Go ahead, Joe. I was going to say, so we, we know, we know like Matt's absolutely correct um, with the, we know of seven archangels really um, with Anarius being one of them. Archangels are supposed to be supposedly uh, the 
represents the five virtues of Anu, valor, wisdom, justice, hope, and fate, uh, in their purest form. Now, it could also be that there are multiple archangels and the Angiris Council is literally comprised of just those that adhered to those ideals the most or embodied it the most in the same way that the prime and lesser evils embody their sin the most um, with, you know, you have oh, well, bloody heck. Why can't, uh, my brain is not functioning today. I apologize. So then you have Anarius and Urius. So Anarius is powerful. He's very, very extremely powerful. Has been, always has been, uh, was an archangel, but didn't really embody any of sort of those ideals purely and sort of ran the gamut. Right. And then, yeah, you- we, like it's worth pointing out that we don't know, like no one's ever said if Anarius was anything specifically. Mm-hmm. Like we, like we know Tyriel is justice. Like Tyriel will literally tell you, I am justice itself. Never heard anything like that from Anarius. Yeah, and, so, Yur- and Urius we only know of as somebody who tried to bring the tenets of the Zakarum to humanity during the yeah. Sin War, but never mm-hmm. got a chance to do it. Yeah, and we don't know who it was or what it was trying to do or how it was trying to do it. We know very little about Urius. It could have been some Archangel of Revelation. I don't know, but we don't know. Like, that's the point. Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but it does say that, at least the way that it's presented, is that it means that any angel of sufficient power can be an Archangel. The Angiris Council just happens to be comprised of archangels, but not all archangels are part of the Angiris Council. It's sort of like those that are raised up as the purest form of their birthright, more or less, that are that are on that council. Uh, and Matt is right. There could be other archangels that we don't know about. There also could be ones that have been born in the time since Diablo 3, because now that we're on Diablo 4 and Heaven's been closed off for quite a while now... Anything could have happened up there, right? Uh, we know that demons have, or angels have fallen to demonhood in, in the past. Speculation indicates that Anarius might wind up being down that path as well, depending on how things shake out. Um, which, man, can you imagine Anarius and uh, Lilith reconciling in the domain of hatred? That'd be that'd be real interesting. I mean, I don't know because, like, as much as I think Anarius is consumed by hatred, but I think in a way that would make it even less likely. I don't think Anarius can get over it. Um, and it's weird because we know that there are angels who, who were part of the rebellion who helped make sanctuary and who left sanctuary and went back to heaven and were accepted. Um, there's the angel Lykander who is the, um, if you know about the sightless eye, we talked about it before Joe mentioned, Joe corrected me when I kept saying it was uh, Lykander who was using the eye. It wasn't, it was Phillies who was a Nephilim. Um, but Phillies was in love with Lycander, who was an angel who had fled back to heaven after Lilith started purging all the angels and demons. She was like, I'm out. Uh, I don't want to get purged. She went back to heaven and they took her back in. Like they let her in. They didn't stop her from coming back in. But when it was obvious she was talking to somebody outside of heaven, they began grilling her on where did you go and what are you doing? So Lycander basically went through, contacted Phillies through the sightless eye and said, don't call me again. They're looking for you. Bury this thing. Don't use the sightless eye. Hide it so that no one in heaven can find you. Uh, and that's the last we heard of Lycander. We don't know where Lycander went. Like after that, we have no idea. Like we've never heard about Lycander again. There's no real details on Lycander other than that. Um, she's currently worshipped by the Ascari in uh, the Scovis Isles. Mm-hmm. They worship her as a god. Um, she didn't ask to be, but, but she is, and she left her spear behind, I think. Um, yeah, she, she left her spear behind. Um, and I don't remember what happened to it. Isn't that the one that Cassio wields? It might be. I don't remember. This is the problem. Like I've read a lot of lore over the years and it's like some of it's just jammed in my head and then like, and you'll be talking later and I'll remember. Uh, but right now I don't know what happened to the spear. Um, but yeah, apparently the the spear is still around. I mean, she left it on sanctuary, so you know, I don't know. Maybe maybe it is the one that uh, Cassia uses. It would make sense, uh, but I I can't remember. Regardless, yeah. though, we we know that angels went back to heaven and were accepted. Uh, at least one of them did. So we don't like we we don't really have a good sense of like at what point are you an archangel? That's another thing we don't really know. Like 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 Joe just pointed out. We've got the, the the ones on the Angiris Council, and then we've got at least Inarius, which implies the existence of others, um, who is 
an advisor to the council, but he's not on it. Like, you know, what does that mean exactly? Uh, other than, well, we, we kind of messed up between Diablo two and Diablo three. So now we kind of, we got to like shoehorn this all in and make it make sense, um, which happens. And you know, that's, that's lore for you. But yeah, regardless, we don't really right now know um, if you've got others, like maybe there's a small, like there's a large group of archangels who kind of are around the Angiris council, but aren't on it, but you know, who help it and work for it. And and are the, and, the main generals of the war? I mean, I don't know. And we've also seen that angels can um, absorb power, I guess would be the best way to, to shortcut it. They can get more powerful over time. And archangels are just the most powerful of the angels, usually manifested with larger wings or more wings uh, or some supreme aspect. Not necessarily mm-hmm. just... Uh, like a pure form of whatever virtue, right? Um, again, going back to Hanarius not really being a virtuous figure in any capacity, uh, he's just really, really powerful. So over time, other angels could potentially ascend into archangeldom depending on what they're doing. Um, going back to Malthiel, who was already an archangel, but then absorbed the power of the Black Soul Stone and became immensely even more powerful than he already was. Did and you'll that- note, he stopped calling himself an archangel. Mm-hmm. He stopped, like, he didn't feel the need to point out that he was an archangel. Like, he was, a, I am the angel of death, and that's sufficient. Like, he just, you know, that's something to think about when we're talking about what archangel and what it means. Because it's not like there's a process to demote someone. Nope. You know, but he just stopped calling himself one. So it could be an archangel is any angel that feels powerful enough to call themselves an archangel and nobody really disputes it. Or the one that screams, Hey, Hey Dave, look, I got four wings now. I'm an archangel. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's, we know very little about the angels. We know more about the demons because we see them more and we, they're talked about more. And you know, you've got the, the, uh, Oh bloody hell. Like if I can't remember the name of this group, I'm going to punch myself in the face. (sighs) Deckard Kane. The, the Haradrim. Thank you. The Haradrim. I could not remember the word Haradrim. Oh my God. <laughs> um, but like the Haradrim, they spend a lot of time writing about demons and devils and all yes, the, you yes, know, the stuff of the hells. They don't spend a lot of time writing about angels. Well, and so also part of that is because angels don't really want to deal with humans, right? Yeah, and exactly. We've seen that in the past where Tyriel was an exception to that. Even, even Ariel, the angel of hope, didn't really deal with humans at all. Um, Anarius dealt with humans when it was convenient for him and to use them. But look, going back to the sin war, how many angels directly interface with humans in any meaningful capacity or let them know that they were actually angels? None. I think, yeah, just, just maybe Anarius if you stretch it. Yeah. And that's a, that's a stretch, but like demons are more than happy to talk about themselves. They're more than happy to deal with the human race. They're more than happy to bargain and barter and deal they're also more apt to have barriers between the the burning hells and sanctuary weakened, right? Angels don't want that. Heaven is a bastion, right? They're, the high heavens are, are meant to be an impenetrable fortress. And before Diablo 3, that was very true, where nothing got in, nothing got out unless they wanted it to. Even now in Diablo 4, they closed off heaven. They close the door. They shut it. Nothing can get in. Nothing is getting out. And we even see like where they called back to Cheerio, get your butt back here. We're locking the door. So the burning hells, on the other hand, are like, cool. Yeah, let's uh, let's open up a gate over here beneath uh, Chaldeum. And, you know, Tristram was nice once. We can open up one down there, too. Right. Like they don't care. They want to, to press into sanctuary. They want to flood places with their presence. And yeah, as a result, because, yeah. they're more, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was agreeing with you. Go ahead. I was say, but as a result, they're more omnipresent, but it also gives us more opportunity to study them and to learn about them and to interact with them. And I think I'm going to go ahead. You also note, I mean, how heretical it was that Zoltan cool was like, you know, we could put angels in these things too. Yeah. When with the soul stones, everyone's like, <gasps> and he's like, what, what do you mean? <gasps> it's, it's obvious. It's the same thing. You just stick the thing in the soul stone. I mean, I don't know why you guys are freaking out about this. And like for his black soul stone was always canonically by him repeatedly said was made to hold angels. Yes. As much as demons. Yep. He didn't care. He wanted to jam them all in soul stones. 
because then they would stop bothering us. The thing about like the demons, the demons come to sanctuary because they honestly believe that their inherent corruption will just turn anything into more of them. Like demons believe that they can turn humans into basically demonic things. They can turn angels into demonic things. And so far it's worked. We've seen them do it. They did it to Izual. They certainly have done it to lots of different humans. They made the Khazra goat people out of humans. Um, they turned them into demons and they are demons now. Khazra are demons, yep. but they started off as humans. Uh, and that's like, that's been the thing. The angels don't seem to be trying very hard to purify anyone. They're not trying to uncorrupt anyone. They, they don't, the only time you've ever heard anything like that mentioned is, is from the, like the, the Zaka room or from the cathedral of light when they're serving an Arius. They talk about, you know, purging sin and, and, you know, like rising up in, in the light and having faith in the light. But most of the time, the other angels are not, not trying this. Like, you know, Imperius is, does not going to, to sanctuary and saying, you know, oh, sure, you know, half of you is gross, but we can work with the half that isn't. He's just like straight up. I don't want them anywhere near us. Yeah. So let's, this actually ties in with another question we got from uh, Mark Arvin here. So I want to, I want to read this off so we can kind of loop in here for the back part of the the podcast. Uh, I found myself fascinated by your take on the potential future of the crystal arch. You say that the lingering effects of the Tathomet Diablo's attack could cause all kinds of mayhem. And I'm so very curious what you think about this hypothetical. Izual was once an angel. He was tormented and became a demon. We kill him at Tyrael's request in Diablo 2, so he can be reborn through the arch. However, that doesn't happen. We fight him in Diablo 3, and he is a full demon. So he regenerated in hell as demons do. You pointed out the primes don't have a problem imitating angels, and that is because they are all from the same source. And we know that, like Iswal, they can go both ways. Lilith appears to have done some evolving and growing on an emotional level, and you have previously stated that she is a different kind of demon, as far as her ambitions breaking the mold. Could she be an outlier from demon kind and emerge from a corrupted arch as a powerful Nephilim? Uh, is it possible that little demonic corruption of an angelic birthing pod would make Nephilim if the ratios of de- demonic angelic essence were balanced? It's painfully obvious that the essences don't factor into good or evil, as Imperius is a bag of blank and Malthiel is a genocidal maniac. As far as I'm aware, it isn't easy to force an individual to the other side. Anarius didn't change and he was also tormented like Iswal. I do think that there's an interesting thought experiment, though, to try to figure out what would have have to shift to allow a demon to be reborn with angelic essence. Food for thought, Tyrael reformed exactly as demons do while on Sanctuary, so we know the Arch isn't necessary, and we don't know if the demons have an equivalent, so maybe it's possible for blended beings to be formed from it. Perhaps that's where our Valkyrie class will come from. So there's a lot of stuff here that I think factors into what we're talking about, too, with the whole transition, and especially with like the Crystal Arch. I've been toying around with this idea that I think the ultimate evolution isn't necessarily for angels and demons to cease existing or the war to be done, but that the essences could theoretically be blended and create something completely new or essentially more Nephilim, because that's what Nephilim are is the combination of those two essences. And if you could combine how things are formed or how they choose to be formed, because it seems like it is a choice almost, right? Uh, Tyrael chose not to go back to the Crystal Arch. He, it was a great effort of will, but he did it and he was reborn as a mortal, uh, you know, and then Iswal wasn't automatically sent back to the, the Crystal Arch. Instead, he reformed in hell or maybe back on the back on sanctuary somewhere and then fell the rest of the way. There's a lot of interesting things that could be said about that. I, I do have to jump in on one thing though. Sure. Tyrael didn't reform as a mortal. Tyrael reformed as an angel. He went right back up to heaven as a full archangel, just like he had been before he blew himself up. He changed himself by act of will into a mortal. Uh, yes, Not a I, human, apologize. I apologize. But, but I think that's important to talk about when we're talking about what we're talking about here, because clearly an angel can decide F this and divest himself of being an angel and still exist. Tyrael's not human, but, but he, he is, is mortal. mortal. And I think that's important. I don't think that you can step through, you can't come out of the corrupted, the crystal arch and you can't regenerate in hell as a mortal being. And I think Nephilim are inherently mortal beings because it is only in being mortal that they approach an understanding 
that angels and demons do not have. And keep in mind that mortal just means the capacity to die. It does not mean that you cannot live indefinitely. It does not mean that you are functionally uh, long-lived or eternal. It just means that you can die. Yeah, it means you can die because you have independent existence. Uh, The angels and demons of the Diablo setting don't. Mm -hmm. They don't have, you know, and in order to gain it, Tyrael had to shuck himself of everything he had been previously. Um, You see it. He forgot who he was. It wasn't until he picked up Alderaan that he remembered who he was. And that's a heck of a thing to do. Like, Israel is tortured, and we don't know, like, we don't know, like, what caused Israel to ultimately come back as what appears to be a demon. But I will point out this. Malthiel's servants, when we see them in, in Diablo 3, Reaper of Souls, they're, many of them look extremely demonic. There's not a touch of demon in them. But they're huge and threatening and have razor fists and there's flames everywhere. And they're not at all like what we've seen from angels. Like the, the one boss that you actually fight um, at the end of act, I want to say act one, but it's not act one because the entire thing is one act. But when you, you fight uh, the, the guy who originally came to Tyrael and said, hey, let me go look for Malthio. Uh, that guy comes back and you fight him. He even explodes in flames and even says the you know, the Nephilim shall perish in flames. Mm-hmm. They, their, their behavior and their structure, everything looks more demonic, but it isn't. It's quite possible Israel isn't demonic at all, but he is chaotic. And we're told that angels are as vulnerable to the chaos of the burning hells as anywhere else. Does that mean the inverse? If, if Diablo had been trapped in heaven and they had worked on him for a while, could they have redeemed Diablo? So I'm not saying they could have. I'm just saying, think about these weird states we're in and what does it mean to be a Nephilim? What does it mean to be a mortal? Could Lilith do it? I don't know. Well, see, here's here's the thing. I I don't think, I don't think that the idea of being mortal is necessarily the thing that needs to be focused on here. I think it, or the idea of being Nephilim, I think it's the idea of something more. So let's, let's look at something we were just talking about where the heavens is sort of like a closed state, right? They don't interact with humans unless they don't have a choice. Uh, The ones that have, and I'm going to point this out, Tyrael and Anarius have fundamentally changed their essences of being as a result of interacting with mortal beings on Sanctuary. The demons are starting to show that same thing. Lilith evolved. She is more than what she was during the Sin Wars. She is arguably more powerful, arguably uh, more focused in where her power and seat of power is, but you cannot argue that she has not changed or shifted herself. Mephisto, we literally just talked about this, has evolved from being a single-minded fury or single-minded hatred being to understanding the full gamut of emotions and spectrum that hatred encompasses. Diablo as well has spent time among mortals and has, even if it was part of his plans, he had a daughter. He had time with humans. He had time in mortal shells. Uh, yes, trying to override them, but I mean, riding around in a human skull while you're jammed in there in a stone um, is, you know, got to change you. And Diablo isn't the same single-minded being we first met in Diablo 1. They are definitely evolving and changing by their exposure to Sanctuary. And I thought about this a little bit. What if it's not necessarily that the demons corrupt humanity or that they corrupt uh, angels or whatever the case is? What if it's the other way around? Yes, there's some level of corruption. Yes, they turn things into demons and, and things like that. But nothing on Sanctuary remains the same. We talked about this too, where Sanctuary itself is a place of change. What happens if we, which, by the way, I should mention... We have passed under the Crystal Arch. We have gone to the High Heavens. We've physically went there. Maybe it's not Diablo that shifts it. Maybe it's us. We are, like you point out, mortals have that sort of power. Nephilim have that power because they are mortal. They understand. They have that power of of not necessarily predetermination or anything like that, but they change. They evolve. They grow. Generations come. Generations go. And And each one changes. And each one changes. changes. 
It changes from what they're descended from and it changes mm-hmm. even, even the, the ones that come after it are changed by them and then change the ones in the future. Yeah, that's all true. What I'm thinking though, is like, um, imagine this aspect of it. Lilith was already different than most demons and Inarius was already different than most angels. They were already on the path to being, becoming something else by the very fact that they, they both felt like this shouldn't be happening. Mm-hmm. Like the eternal conflict is doesn't make sense. Why are we doing it? The idea that they stopped and thought that. Think about how odd that is. But it happened because they were constantly in contact with each other's essences. Maybe. Maybe because they were the ones fighting the most. I mean, Anarius fought a lot, and for that matter, who are the others that fight a lot and who mm. would therefore run into angels and demons? Tyrael and Imperius. Uh huh. And who's the one that killed Diablo? when the rest of the Angiris council wanted to capture him so they could hold him because that way he wouldn't get out and just come back imperious. If you have a situation where people can say, why are we doing this? This doesn't make sense. There are always going to be beings that are like, no, this is how it should be, how it must be. I I keep thinking back to of all things, Star Trek five and Star Trek six, specifically in Star Trek six, the part where the Klingons and the Federation, there have people from both the Klingon you know, military and the Federation military Starfleet who work together to prevent them from working together. They come together dedicated to the idea that there shouldn't be possible for them to come together. And they come up with a conspiracy to kill the leaders of the Klingons and the Federation to prevent the, le- the Klingons and the Federation from joining forces. They join forces to stop it from happening. Every time I think about Imperius, I think about that. And we haven't seen Imperius in a while. And I think about that when you're talking about Lilith and Inarius. I don't I don't think Inarius is ever going to get past what happened to him. I think no. the, the torture and all of that, he's not going to get past. He's not going to forgive Lilith. But they could make common cause mm-hmm. if they both believed that the only way to prevent the heavens and the hells from destroying them was to do so. And the thing is, is that the heavens are perfectly happy to stay locked away behind the heavens. They're not the threat right now, but the hells are because the hells are inherently expansionist by their nature. They want more because that's one of the things that's, it's a sin. It's one of the things being greedy is a sin. Wanting more is a sin. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, so it, it comes going back and forth. What you're talking about with humans, I think it's, interesting to think about it might not even be it might not even be the humans themselves inherently it might be the fact that humans are every day having to fight inside themselves yep to determine who they want to be yep you bring that to the heavens the heavens is a place where everything is already we, we've told you what's determined you are. it's predetermined yeah you are supposed to be this and arius wasn't supposed to run away and create like sanctuary, you know, and look what happened to Malthiel when he went to study what had happened. Mm-hmm. Who was the archangel that studied uh, the the world stone slash eye of Anu the most? Malthiel. What is the eye of Anu if not change? Because it makes new things. The infinite capacity, how, right? Yeah. And how did they? How did these these people get to steal it in the first place? Because they realized we can't physically move it out of Pandemonium but we can make a place around it. And basically you're not moving it out of pandemonium and the connection is still there. The soul stone chamber. I mean, the world stone chamber in the pandemonium fortress is still there and people travel to it when they die. Yep. Why? And what does that have to do with this, this question that, that you've asked about what could Lilith become a Nephilim? I don't know if Nephilim is necessarily the thing that she'd become. I don't necessarily think that she's going to like take in the light or what have you, but I think she is going to change. I think it's inevitable. Yeah. I think in fact, she has, as Joe pointed out, she has already changed. Although I would argue that the, the Lilith we saw in the sin war books and the Lilith from the, the tales of the first formation of sanctuary was already changing, was already different than most demons. I mean, think about it when she, when she comes up with the plan to steal her father's power, she almost immediately plans to use it against the other demons. Now, demons love to infight, but this isn't infighting. 
And you notice there's another character that we never talk about because he's a minor character in Diablo 4, but I think he's a perfect example of demons being changed. And unfortunately, I just blanked on his freaking name again, but Joe, you'll know him. The guy who gives you all those quests to find weird artifacts and halfway through it turns out he's possessed. Kavadashen? No, no, no. In Diablo 4. He's, he's in the uh, the dry steps and he's like, oh, go get this thing for me and go get that thing for me. And eventually like you you find out he's a demon, but he is still collecting these things to lock them away from other people because he doesn't want the demons to take over Sanctuary. He likes Sanctuary the way it is. He likes Sanctuary with the mortals running it the way they're running it. And he opposes the demons because they'll ruin his, his, his new place that Rakan. he likes to be in. Rakan, thank you. That guy. He is a demon. He is not, you know, he does not make any bones about it. He does not pretend once he, once you catch him, he's like, yeah, okay, I'm a demon. You know, he, he, he very quickly just admits it. He isn't, he does pretend not to be one, but in a way that like he, no one asked him if he was a demon, so he doesn't volunteer it. But if you like, you know, Hey, wait a minute. Yes. Yes. I'm a demon, but I don't want the demons here. I, I don't want this world to get turned into a, a cesspit or an abattoir in a way. He is the most changed demon of any of them because he's still being a demon. He's still, you know, he still likes, you know, to do the things demons do, except he, he doesn't want to destroy the world or let demons rule it or go around eating people. Mm -hmm. He he's, he likes sanctuary as it is. He likes being able to sit back and watch the foibles of humanity. It's, it's freaking entertaining for him. And the idea that, you know, while still being a selfish malevolent demonic force he's being selfish and malevolent in a way that is not going to hurt anybody else he's he's adapted to sanctuary and it's fascinating to me because it, it pretty much personifies what joe's talking about where the world changes you and we already knew that the world changes us because in our own everyday normal lives the world changes us but sanctuary is like an extreme example of this yeah and i think uh I don't think I have much else to add to that. <laughs> like, I, I, I think it's an interesting, you're talking about a thought experiment here. I think we need to start thinking about it in the reverse. I think we need to start thinking about what sanctuary does to everything that what, touches it. What, why is it so important that the Nephilim happen? Mm -hmm. What do they signify? I don't think it's a question of Lilith becoming a Nephilim or Lilith and Anarius making buddy, buddy. I do think it's an example of, the there's, universe was stagnant. Yeah, there's something you said a long time ago when we were talking about Diablo that's always stuck with me, is that in order to become perfect, Anu, it wasn't the act of him ripping the bad out of him. It was the fact that by doing so, it led to a world in which change could, or a universe, an existence in which change could actually happen. Because yeah, because there was nothing. He was living in this weird diamond forever by itself forever. Which isn't perfection. Perfection is yeah. constant evolution and adaptation and change. Entropy, there's beauty in entropy, right? There, there's a certain amount of, of perfection in that because, again, being stagnant isn't perfect. It, it, the only way it can be perfect is if it's the end state. And then it's perfect just in that definition of perfection where, you know, where count no man happy before he's dead. Mm -hmm. But that means it's done. That means there's nothing new. And in a way, perfection's the enemy. You don't want to be perfect because then you're done. But if you're not perfect, there's always something new to do. There's some place to go. There's a new thing to be. As long as there are new things you can do, you, can, you, you have an existence worth existing in. Rather than just sitting there and going, well, I'm everything. I'm still everything. Nope, nobody but me. Still just me. You know, it, it's almost an act of desperation to, to rip yourself in half to create another person to talk to. And, and of course, they immediately violently attack each other. But in so doing, now you can have all these different voices. You can have a world of contrasts. Whereas before, you just had, well, still me. So yeah. if You know who's responsible for me thinking this kind of crap? Mm. Uh, part of it is... is uh, Kabbalism and, and the Gnostic uh, philosophy. Some of it is Jim Shooter. Okay. Because of Secret Wars 2. Yeah. Possibly one of the worst comic books ever made. However. But it still has, it has that moment where yep. Beyonder is talking uh, to, to Boom Boom about himself. And he's just like, well, it was just me. I, I didn't have anything but me. So, yeah. But I think that's going to do it for us today, folks. 
Uh, again, I do want to thank you for joining us. Blizzard Watch is only made possible due to your generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzardwatch and your continued support. That support means that this podcast site and community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, better chance at having your question answered on our podcast with a queue, and an ad-free site experience. If you have questions for us here on any of our podcasts, be sure to send those into podcast at blizzardwatch.com or hit us up on one of our various uh, channels on the Discord server. If you can't support us at Patreon, again, we understand. Uh, we do ask that you take a few moments out of your time after listening to us to either share a link to our podcast content with your friends, give us a like on the YouTube, uh, maybe a subscribe, all that stuff. It does help. Leave us a review, give us the stars wherever podcasts are like it's varied whatever platform you're listening to us if you give us a little bit of a love bump us. it helps we love you just love us back <laughs> we seek and crave your validation uh but it does help quite a bit but again thank you very much folks we'll see you next week Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.